Hey guys, Jules here. Before we start, this is our last episode of the season, by the way, which is pretty amazing. (laughs) We made it. (laughs) I can't believe it. But I wanted to give you a heads up about some things we're doing kind of in between seasons this year. Our second season isn't set to launch until May, but in the intermediate months, I'm going to have a little mini series that I'm calling On My Bookshelf. This is a series where I'll be interviewing authors and experts and a variety of genres. This is kind of my thing. (laughs) Books are my thing. I've done a lot on books um, in our first season, and I just thought it'd be an awesome way to have some things that we can read together. Some of these books are from interesting genres. We're interviewing a literary journal. We're interviewing a poet. And some of these books are pertaining to things happening in our world right now. Things like the Me Too movement, things like racial prejudice, etc. So I'm really looking forward to this series. They're going to come out every two weeks instead of every week, so there'll be about six episodes in between our seasons. Our first episode on this series on my bookshelf will be interviewing Claire from The Catholic Feminist and her new book, Girl Arise, and that's set to launch on February 14th. So thank you so much for being here with me today, guys, and here's the show. Uh, Middle of September, I used to love to walk home from school. I went to high school right up around the corner from my house. I would love to walk home from school because all the old Italian women were canning their tomatoes. And the whole neighborhood smelled like spaghetti sauce. You smell that that fresh tomato cooking, and, and you'd smell that fresh basil that they'd be put. Oh my God, it was it was wonderful. And then you'd have the baker who had the fresh bread. So you'd stop and get a, a fresh bread and you'd hope that somebody would ask you to come in and taste their sauce, you know? This is the story of the real Rosetto effect. Hey guys, it's Jules again. (laughs) What a fun way to start an episode, right? We'll get to that wonderful man and all of his awesome moments from his childhood in just a bit. But for today's story, I wanted to start with a glimpse of just real, authentic, lived life, right? Today is all about celebrating who we are as a Catholic people, about finding that extraordinary in the ordinary of our lives. We spent the past three episodes and really this whole season, let's be honest, getting at the heart of this one word, subculture. We've talked about individual Catholic subcultures like the worlds of literature and blogging. We've talked about the historical understandings of the phrase and how we came to be at this particular moment in our Catholic American story. So I thought a lot about this. I thought a lot about how I wanted to end this season. I didn't want it to be a session where I just complained the whole time. (laughs) That's not really my style. And I'm sure there are other podcasts out there who can do that um, just fine, actually. But I also didn't want to leave this series open-ended because the church is a mess. 
right now, all right? It's just, it's a mess. And I know a lot of people have put their ideas out there. Some people even call them options, right, on how to fix it. So after studying this for over a year and interviewing all these amazing people, I decided I'd throw my hat in the ring. <laughs> Let's talk today about what an authentic, real, beautiful, messy, faithful Catholic subculture could look like in the modern era. So to begin, I want to tell you a story. It goes back to that man you just heard. So journey with me, listeners, to the small borough of Rosetto, Pennsylvania. Before we begin, let's get some help to tell the rest of the story. My name is Joseph Charles Angelini, and I am the mayor of Rosetto, Pennsylvania. Mayor Joe and his family moved back to Rosetto when he was just nine years old. He comes from a line of Rosetto royalty, actually. His parents were both born and raised in Rosetto, and his dad was mayor for 28 years before his retirement in the 90s. So I asked the mayor, Mayor Joe, if he could walk me through the history of this small but mighty borough in the Northeast. Because on the surface, Rosetto might just look like any other small mining or industrial town, right? But several decades ago, this small town of 1500 rose to national fame because of a single academic study. But I think I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> First, let's talk about the history. The first settlers for Rosetto actually left Rosetto Valfatori, Italy on January the 5th, 1882. The first group of Italian settlers moved to this region and found work in the slate quarries, similar to the work they actually did in Rosetto, Italy. The first wealthy benefactor to buy land for the community was Niccolo Rosato, who bought the land which started as New Italy, but in 1912 it would become the official town of Pennsylvania, Rosetto. And the heart of the small square mile town was the church. And the early settlers made sure of that. They asked the uh, bishop of the Philadelphia diocese for a priest. And he told them that if they could find one, they could have one. Well, they got one that came over from Italy. He came in from Italy. It was uh, the Reverend Luigi Sabetti. He migrated then to Italy, or to Rosetto. And they formed the parish of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, which, of course, we still have today. And for the residents of Rosetto, there was no more important center to their lives than the local church. At one time, the, the church was, was the main focal point of the community. Every small, ordinary moment of these Rosettans revolved around their parish. The parish had a school, social clubs, and hosted, of course, the biggest event of the year, the big time. <laughs> a three-day festival honoring Our Lady, including processions through the town, dances, and even crowning a festival queen. It still exists today, by the way, this wonderful festival. The church was simply a daily presence in the lives of the people of Rosetto, from its spiritual center and even to its artistic center. Back back in the in, in the early days, 
the uh, church had a in the church basement they had a stage down there and they used to have a plays down there like every two months they would have a different play and the, the people of the parish put the people of the parish would put the play on they'd be in the play they when i was younger they had dances in the church basement before us uh every sunday What's night actually they had a dance understand about this small town and why we are talking about it today is what happened in the middle of the 1960s now the story goes like this Back in 1961, there was a prominent cardiologist, Dr. Stuart Wolf, who was speaking with a fellow doctor in the eastern Pennsylvania area. And this doctor friend mentioned that there was this town, this small town of Rosetto, that in all of his years as a doctor, he had never encountered anyone in the high-risk group of men, so that's 55 to 64, anyone had ever had a heart attack of any kind. Now, this was a bit peculiar because heart disease was and still is the leading killer of people over the age of 55. So Dr. Wolf decided he had to check out the situation for himself. Dr. Wolf came into town from the University of Iowa with his, with his crew. They interviewed a, a number of, of, of Rosetto residents. They took blood samples. They interviewed. They watched. They followed them around during the day. And they, they found that our lifestyle was a little bit different than the rest of the world. Uh, the, the people, they worked hard. Uh, when they came home from work, they didn't just, you know, sit down. They actually went out in the garden. They, everybody grew their own their own produce, and they actually raised their own their own uh, cattle, their own pigs, their own chickens. And so that stuff all had to be tended to. So they kind of worked after their daily jobs. They all came home. They had stuff to do at home. And then they would settle in for their evening meal. And this different lifestyle, the doctors concluded, became known as the Rosetto Effect. And it went something like this. The community bonds were so strong. The clan-like familiar structure was so intact that people in this small borough had such little stress in their lives that they just simply didn't have heart disease. Well, all the families in Rosetto stuck together. And I think that's where they got that clansman from because you had large families. You know, the, 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 my, my father's family were 10, my mother's family were nine. Uh, you, you got into where every family stuck together and, and took care of each other. You know, the, the old Italian, a la familia, the family, that's the most important thing. And at that time, when they were here doing the study, that's the way it was. The families were the family. And, and I mean, they were friends with everybody else. Don't get me wrong. And then Rosetta itself was one big family. So little stress because their internal relationships were so strong. Their lives, in a sense, were very simple and family-based that they didn't have heart disease. Pretty amazing, right? Now, this story is kind of legendary among Italian-Americans. I actually first heard of it in a book of Malcolm Gladwell's, but it's also featured in the PBS documentary about Italian-Americans and has, over the years, made its way through medical journals, medical schools, psychology, you name it. So I first heard the story and I thought, that is it, right? (laughs) That is what we're missing. It is relational ministry at its finest. I immediately reached out to Mayor Joe thinking I had found that secret sauce. You see what I did there? (laughs) But not so fast. Because listen to what Joe said when I first brought up the Rosetto Effect. Well, well, I, that's a bad subject with some of us. Wait, what? A sore subject? 
Why? They kind of not made fun of us, but they kind of portrayed us as a. Uh, we actually got the nickname the Fat and Happy Town because everybody here, you know, we were we were eating things that we shouldn't have been eating. If you're like me and you have Italian grandparents, you understand this, right? Everything was cooked with lard. There's lots of red meat, which they butchered themselves, by the way. Pasta every night, lots of wine. You get the picture. And when the scientists saw this, they saw their way of life, they immediately assumed there is just no way these people could live like this in any other place but Rosetto, Pennsylvania. It can't be their diets keeping them alive, so there must be something else. It must be their love, their relationships, and subsequently, their lack of stress. So they kind of put all this together, and they figure that, geez, the borough of Rosetto has something going for them because it's definitely a, a, a low rate of heart attacks. So why was Mayor Joe and others in the town a little put off about the Rosetto effect? Well, the more I talked to Joe, the more I realized the problem in the end for them wasn't the conclusion. Joe loves the idea of the Italia Familia, right? It's what kept their whole town together for so many years. But the problem is simply that it wasn't the whole story. For example, the scientists didn't keep in mind that everything was made fresh. All of the food came from their garden. They made their own sausage, their own wine, their own sauce. Everything was made by hand and stored throughout the year in basement cellars. The scientists also didn't keep in mind that everyone walked everywhere. Remember, Rosetto is only a square mile wide. And everyone walked to either the blouse factories or the quarries. That's where they worked. There was no use for a car, and when they got home in the spring and the summers, they would go straight to their gardens. And after dinner, they also didn't keep in mind the huge social commitments, right? Men would go to different card games or events at their church. And, by the way, (laughs) the scientists missed the huge spiritual life of the town. How important the church was to everyone. The fact that people went to regular confession. And the effect that this also had on their health. You see, the Rosetto effect is true, but it's incomplete. The whole story is so much more complex and complicated. In a sense, it's kind of an easy way out. Originally, I thought the story of the Rosetto effect would be the perfect way to end our first season because I loved the idea of relationships being at the heart of community life. Now, I believe this, I really do, but I also didn't want to make the same mistake as the original scientists or Malcolm Gladwell for that matter. I wanted the more complete picture. So in a bit of a different twist for today's episode, I reached out to some friends. So my name is Chloe Linger. Okay, so this is Matt again. My name is Kevin Heider. I'm Claire Swinarski. Hi, this is Zach Mabry. I am Katie Prejean McGrady. Hi, I'm Adrian Garcia. I am one half of the Dude Catholic Podcast. That's right, folks. We've used the arts as our guide for this whole month. We've talked about literature and music and movies. But for today, I couldn't think of a better artistic medium to end 
than the medium of podcasting. By the way, no snarky comments that podcasting's not an art. <laughs> it is hard work. <laughs> so I am going to begin this second half of the episode talking to some fellow Catholic podcasters, and I'm going to ask them this one single question. What does an authentic, faithful Catholic subculture look like in the modern era? So let's start today with this wonderful woman. I am Katie Prejean McGrady. I am um, a permanent, or that's a stupid way to put it. Let me start again. Um, (laughs) I'm not a permanent mom. I am a full-time mom, but I guess permanently a mom is terrible. So I am uh, Katie Prejean McGrady. I am a full-time wife and mom and a professional Catholic speaker. Um, And I also write. I write for Ifa Maria Press. I've got three books with them, a couple of different outlets, America Magazine, The Grotto Network, Epic Pew, Life Teen. And I have a podcast with my husband called The Electric Waffle, where our tagline for the podcast is um, an electric conversation about nothing. So uh, we just kind of decided (laughs) one day randomly to sit down and uh, start recording ourselves talking over the kitchen table. In case you didn't pick it up from Katie's amazing accomplishments, she's actually kind of like, I don't know, Catholic youth ministry royalty in America. (laughs) I think she would probably hate that I called her that. But she's amazing. She is an international speaker from everything from youth conferences and even giving a presentation to the USCCB. And this past summer, she met with the Pope to help coordinate the Youth Synod from a few months ago. She's just remarkable. And honestly, she was a blast to talk to. Right? It's funny how we've manipulated the human person with television so much so that <laughs> that's literally what I'm talking about with you right now. Anyway, thanks for having me on. It's nice to be nice This will you. make great B-roll. No, this is... <laughs> <laughs> So Katie and her husband, Tommy, have a podcast called The Electric Waffle. I'll have a link to all of our podcasters, by the way, on our website. And so to get us started off, I asked Katie this question. What does an authentic, faithful Catholic subculture look like in the modern era? In our in our world as Catholics, we are constantly, at least I know, I am constantly kind of looking around and asking myself, how can I make the secular world more Catholic because it should be right. Like we're right. And and Catholicism is the fullness of truth. And so how can I make, you know, even my trip to target uh, an experience of my faith in some sense, or or how could I make this purchase of a a cup of coffee at Starbucks, which is way overpriced and burned and not that good. Like how could I maybe have some sort of an interaction with somebody in this coffee shop that could be a testament to Jesus Christ. But it wasn't necessarily these interactions which helped shape Katie's view about Catholics in the culture. It was her interactions with the Catholics themselves, or more specifically, it was about asking the right kind of questions. Katie mentioned a book that she read recently about the founding of Instagram and how this book helped her understand part of the problem in our modern Catholic subculture. And it's it's growing somewhat, but no investors are buying in because they just don't get it because it's it's a new thing. They have to create this new culture of sharing photos. Right. And so asking themselves and other people, like, why aren't people investing. Why aren't people signing up? And they meet this guy and and, and an early investor and they meet this guy and, and they meet him for coffee and they're talking to him and they're showing him the app and they're showing him, you know, these are the people that are on there. And as they're showing it to him, people are signing up in real time. 
Hmm. And Bester goes, you're asking yourselves the wrong question. You're asking yourselves why people aren't signing up when you should be asking yourself the question of why are the people that are using it choosing to use it? Like, why do they like it? You see for Katie and for others who have worked in the church as well, the answer to the problems of our subculture begins simply by asking the right questions. But I I really do think a lot of times we're going about it the wrong way. We're asking, why aren't they here? As opposed to turning to that 14% of millennials already in the pews and saying, well, why are you here? And, And what is it about our faith that has inspired you and that has challenged you and that you love and and really asking i think a very basic question that could really change the world is if you sat down with every believer and said who is jesus christ to you and what has he done in your life in the Rosetto effect the scientists came to the conclusions but in a sense they never really asked the right questions and because of this the conclusions were as we said earlier a little bit incomplete. They basically saw what they wanted to see. So part of our journey into figuring out how to live in authentic Catholic culture is simply by asking the right set of questions. And in that spirit, let's move on. We've got some other podcasters we need to meet. So round two of interviews, there's this guy. Hi, I'm Adrian Garcia. I am one half of the Dude Catholic Podcast. The other half, by the way, is Adrian's brother Ramon. And I really like these guys. (laughs) Their passion for their faith is so contagious. And I love that they're brothers who talk to each other in the real honest way that brothers do. Man, that that question, um, it's kind of funny because my brother thought it was an easy question to answer. And I thought it was one of the hardest questions I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and, and he says, he says that, oh, it's just really easy. It's just how we live our life. Right. And I'm like, you jerk. That's the answer. <laughs> so let's get to the heart of it with Adrian. What does a faithful Catholic subculture look like in the modern era? Well, most of the things in our culture are actually Catholic. So to say subculture would mean that we took a back seat in the culture to let the culture run itself hmm. and then became the subculture but by not taking the realms of, of the culture itself. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we, become, we become secondary to the thing we started. I like this because we often forget the history of the church in the modern way of life. For Adrian, authentic Catholic subculture means living in a substance-filled, liturgically-centered way. We can be a model for the real deal, for living the way we're all meant to live by simply entering fully into the traditions and the sacramental life of the church. Can I ask really quick, what do you mean when you say that they are holding on to the Catholicity of our culture? What do you mean by that? I mean that, I mean, let's face it, we started it all. Right. You know, whether it's Christmas with the Advent season, it's uh, looking at St. Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, Easter, like all this stuff, all, all the seasons, you know, the smells, the bells, the whistles, all that is Catholic. We can't say it started at 500 years ago right. with the Reformation. You know, it started before. It started with the traditions that, that flow out of Jewish culture into the new Christian culture. You know, and, and all of this comes comes out of the church, you know, and it's and we we still notice that there is that that 
it still tastes like the church, you know, because when I look at Christmas lights, when I look at, or when I listen to Christmas music, because we, Christmas is all about nostalgia, you know, people are holding on to that feeling. Right. They're holding on to a feeling and, and we're starving for the substance of it. And the substance can only be found in those, those Christmas hymns. You know, the 12 days of Christmas, I got my, I hear my 10 year old singing that and I'm like, I know what each one of those means. <laughs> you know? So I think, is it what you're saying that, that all of this kind of liturgical life of the church has been stripped of its like sacramental meaning and instead, you know, what's left in the broader culture is this just kind of almost mask of what it could be. Is that exactly the, the shiny shell of right. what it could be? And these awesome guys from Dude Catholic weren't the only ones who had an answer just along these lines. So my name is Chloe Linger, and I run and produce two Catholic podcasts. The first is Letters to Women, which is a podcast that explores the feminine genius. And the second I co-host with my friend Joe Heschmeyer, and it's called The Catholic Podcast. And it's just a conversation about living out our Catholic faith in today's world. I adore Chloe, by the way. <laughs> she was, in a sense, my first podcasting friend <laughs> when I entered this space a few months ago. And she's also an overachiever. She has not one, but two Catholic podcasts. So her insights were pretty perfect for today's episode. I think if I had to have one word that summarizes how to live um, Catholic culture, especially in today's modern era, it would be lifestyle. So a lot of times we think of living the Catholic culture like we need a program or we need something that gives us the six steps to successfully living Catholic culture. But the reality is, is that it really breaks down into super simple things um, and we tend to overcomplicate. So the first is that we have to have this deep, intimate friendship with Christ. Like if we're wanting to live in a Catholic culture in a world that is discouraging us from having any morals, we, ha we can't pour from an empty well. We have to constantly be going to Christ and being filled. But... We also have to recognize that we can't do it on our own. Um, we can try. It's going to be incredibly discouraging. But if you're surrounded by authentic friendships, by friends who are striving along to sainthood with you, I think there's such a beauty in authentic friendship and authentic community. Now, remember the original message of the Rosetto Effect? It's this. Chloe's right. We cannot live in isolation. We need one another to live in a sacramental way. And for Chloe, the church has already given us a model of how to live in the world well. But what I love to think of when I think about the world today and I think about living as a Catholic in the world today is the fact that what the world really needs right now is a mom. Like, Aww. we think about... <laughs> <laughs> Like when you're little and you fall down and hurt yourself, what's the first thing that you call for? You call for your mom because she understands... <laughs> And so often in today's world, like when we open the headlines, it feels like we're tripping over ourselves or even as a church, like really struggling and being having a lot of deep, deep scars that we're just not realizing. Right. And we need a mom. And I love how, you know, we, we could all think of our moms, but there's this ultimate example of motherhood. And that's the example of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I love how Mary just embodies everything about womanhood. She embodies like all these different characteristics of living out the feminine genius. So John Paul II talks about how women are sensitive, women are generous, women have this call for maternity, women are receptive. And I think she, Mary, offers such a beautiful example of living out Catholic culture in today's world, not only for women, 
especially for women though, because we have this unique call to live out the feminine genius, but also for men too, to look at, look to her as a mother and look to her for help. So I think she's really this guiding light in this conversation for sure. Now, Chloe, Adrian, and Katie have all spoken to a central idea for each of us. We've been given the tools, now we must choose to use them. We have these immense gifts, right? We have the gift of the sacraments and the grace which we receive from them. We have established rituals and patterns to our lives in the liturgical seasons. And we have access to Our Lady, our powerful intercessor and even cheerleader. But I'm also reminded of something I heard in one of my interviews this season. It was with Dr. Bill Portier. He's a theology professor at the University of Dayton. He told me Catholics are the people who have stuff. (laughs) Catholicism isn't some spiritual, internal religion. It is a world. And to be a Catholic means to inhabit this world. So this stuff, the physicalness of our faith, is central to who we are. And that reminds me of something else I heard in these interviews. And it came from this guy. Hi, this is Zach Mabry. And there is Zach's podcasting partner. Okay, so this is Matt again. And together, these guys make up the podcast Roman Circus. It's just an awesome discussion-based interview style podcast. Now, when we chatted about the Catholic subculture in the modern era, Zach said something which made me think about this physicalness of our faith. When I think about the Catholic subculture, I think what immediately comes to mind, honestly, is, is like when you go to a museum and you see Christian artwork throughout the centuries, it's always so colorful. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what I would like to see from a Catholic subculture is is lots of, of color. And that can be like literally, you know, having artwork and, and celebrating kind of our artistic and um, architectural and musical heritage, but then also the way that we live our lives, you know, having feast days, you know, really sort of adorning our lives with the faith and all of the sort of beautiful elements that we get from our faith, whether that's the rosary, certain saints, you know, wearing the scapular, different things that just sort of add add color to to life because you know if, if you look out in the world it's like things can start to seem pretty gray and just flat you know you see one of the messages of Rosetto was just this a colorful joy-filled life lived well now Italians were historically a devotional people they had these glorious processions through the streets they were singing and adorning the blessed mother with flowers They loved their rosaries, their scapulars, their traditions. They are loud (laughs) and opinionated and familial. They embraced all of the things which others might see as strange or unnecessary because they were tools for them on how to live life to the fullest. But here's the thing. This colorful culture, it can't offer cheap alternatives to the broader culture. We've seen what happens when we try to do this. Here's Matt, the second half of the Roman circus, and what he had to say about this. Living as a Catholic, living in the culture now, what I always think about is how hard it is to compete with what's going on culturally. And I think sometimes we are at a disadvantage because we try and keep up culturally, but we'll never win culturally, if that makes sense. Uh, 
no one does a rock concert better than a rock concert. So like sometimes when we try and compete with that in mass or in, in our spiritual life, we'll always kind of fall short. At least, and, and speaking for myself, I know that to be very true based on the number of concerts I've attended throughout my life. <laughs> it's kind of the tricky balance, being appealing, but also being sacred. When we try to cheapen our faith, whether it's artistically or even in our worship, I know growing up, our worship, our architecture was often sanitized and maybe even boring. When we do this, we miss the rich texture that our faith has to offer. Nobody is drawn into the boring, right? We need to engage the culture, but we can't attempt to give them shiny substitutes. Have you guys seen some of the offerings of, let's say, Christian movies of the past decade? That's what happens when we produce poor art as a shiny alternative. Because here's the thing, shiny substitutes create a lose-lose situation for everyone. There's nothing which draws the outside in, but it subsequently only speaks to the base of the people, to the people on the inside. And this is the exact opposite of a true, authentic culture. Because to be a gospel-filled people, we must have an open-door policy. We can't be afraid to engage in the hopes of drawing people into the love of Christ. And so I was really, really happy (laughs) when one of the podcasters I spoke to brought up this very point. This is Claire. This is... Hi. Hi. How are you, Claire? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Have you all listened to Claire's podcast, by the way, The Catholic Feminist? It's really quite amazing because she ventures into topics which might be commonly seen as outside of our Catholic bubble echo chambers. She talks everything from pro-life activity to immigration to criminal justice reform, divorce, you get the picture. She ventures in, but she doesn't dilute the message. And to her, the heart of the Catholic subculture are not echo chambers, but open doors. I think to me, an authentic Catholic subculture would look like putting the dignity of other people above all else, above our own comfort, above our fear of what other people think about us, above our political desires, above even our career aspirations. I think it would be just seeing other people as the face of God as his precious children and just looking at them as beloved as they are and putting that human dignity as a priority above anything else. So I think it would look like Catholics being known as the people you can go to in a crisis, Catholics being known as the people who will shelter you and give you hope and Catholics being known as, as love, as love itself, as the hands and feet of Jesus. And I hope that we can get closer to that. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I loved that answer. That was Thanks. really good. Really <laughs> <laughs> it would be pretty awful if I was like, I'm sorry. Can you wrong, you <laughs> wrong answer, right? <laughs> when we talk about culture, I'm afraid we sometimes fall into this us first them mentality. We think we need to remain insulated, right? But this does nothing but make enemies out of our neighbors. And to get past this thinking, 
I think we need to hear from one more podcaster. My name is Kevin Heider. I am a singer-songwriter, recording artist, uh, performer, and I run a, a podcast called Song and Story. Kevin has been a full-time professional musician since 2010, and I love his music. <laughs> I'll link to his website, by the way, on our website. But along with Claire, Kevin spoke of the detriment that these divisions, these echo chambers, have been to our existing Catholic culture. I would start with um, Catholics, Christians, Christians in general, not being so easily offended. By the culture? By the arts? What do you mean by that? By the culture, by anything that challenges their paradigms or their ideologies that they might hold that are, I guess, kind of outside the Catholic or Christian realm. As I was putting together this episode, a kind of strange thing happened in the Catholic world, which, by the way, seems to be happening more often recently. (laughs) A prominent, well-known Catholic university, the University of Steubenville, came under fire for this book. This book, this professor assigned to students in an English class. Now, I don't know the book at all, and I can't really make an assessment on whether it was a good choice or not. But the professor has since come out and he explained his decision. And his primary point was this. We must engage to an extent with the culture so as to understand how to be the real, authentic answer for the culture. In reflecting on what happened at the university, Kevin, who is an alumni, by the way, wrote down some of his thoughts. You know, if if vice confronts your virtue, embrace confrontation. If heresy challenges your orthodoxy, accept the challenge. If someone spits in your face and curses your God, invite them to dinner. The ease with which you are shocked and offended will convince no one of your truth, only that your skin is thin. And your fear of the darkness will not convince anyone that your faith is real, only that your mind is obstinate. Let's be honest. We know ultimately what was at the heart of the craziness of the Steubenville story. We spent the last decade drawing lines. We've allowed the American political rhetoric to seep into the walls of our churches. We've forced people into sides. We've declared good guys and bad guys. And honestly, I just... Maybe this is just my opinion, but frankly, it just has to stop. It has proven to be an ineffective, failed experiment. If the purpose of our subculture becomes forcing people into boxes, into choosing sides, then we will never survive, at least in a healthy way, as a Catholic people. We forget, of course, that we are in fact a part of a family. Remember the message of Rosetto, right? The Italia Familia. <laughs> they didn't thrive because they agreed all the time. Goodness, no. Have y'all ever been to an Italian family reunion? <laughs> They're not exactly like the pinnacle of agreement, <laughs> but they thrive because they know how to love. Their lives are filled with love and as a result they were also filled with joy it's the first of february and we all have gathered here to drink up for king and conscience 
from this glorious lake of beer and drink we will straight on till morning drink we will all through the night and if the sun should cease to give it this lake of beer will be our light they say the first shall be the last so sister Bridget fill my glass I'll be the first to drink and the last to die oh but I'll have glory at my side quickly tell me we're using St. Bridget's Fire. Can you tell me just a little bit about your inspiration for that song? Yeah. So I was actually, um, gosh. So I was at a, a week long theology of the body immersion course in rural Pennsylvania with, uh, Christopher West was actually presenting the course. And, you know, at one point he talked, he was talking about just needing to live life with passion. And the example he used for that you know, he said, you know, we often have these very kind of wimpy notions of heaven. There's people just kind of in white togas floating around from cloud to cloud with harp music playing. <laughs> but he said, you know, we need to live life with passion. And, and St. Bridget of Ireland, her vision of heaven was of a great lake of beer. <laughs> and I, as soon as he said that, I thought, well, obviously I have to write a song about that. So <laughs> be, because I was most of the way through this week of immersing myself in the language of theology of the body, you know, in the language of vocation and what does it mean to be a man, to be a woman? Uh, what does it mean to, to have a body and a soul? And just because I was, I was in that place mentally, uh, the song is, it, it sounds on the outside, it sounds like an irreverent drinking song, but it's really, it's about heaven and it's actually loaded with themes of uh, theology of the body and mercy. Oh, I refuse that it should come to pass that when I look back on my life, I'll see an empty home and an empty heart and the boy who never found his wife. And if a thief should sneak up on me and take from me my cup, my share, I'll say there's plenty more where that came from. Come with me, I'll take you there. They say the first shall be the last, so Sister Bridget, fill my glass. Drink and-
marching in. Oh, when the saints go marching in, they will behold a lake of beer, and they all will dive right in. The choice of this song, of course, was no accident. There's something about it which just screams life, right? (laughs) You find your foot tapping and your voice raised, and you can't really help but smile when you listen to it. But as Kevin said, it's not superficial in its intention. It's actually a song about the communion of saints about how each of us are called to live this life well, so that ultimately we can live forever in our heavenly home. Each of the reflections we heard today was about this very simple premise. Our cultures are only as strong and faithful as the people who inhabit them. The more we sow division, the more we run from dialogue, We simply end up shouting into a void without actually contributing to the problem. But we can learn from Rosetto. The message of Rosetto, as we said, wasn't one thing, one simple fix. It was a series of small moments, decisions, habits. What made Rosetto so extraordinary was the fact that it was so ordinary. It was simply an example of a life lived well, a prayer I have for all of us. A huge, huge thank you to all the people who let me interview them today, to Katie, to Adrian, to Chloe, to the Roman Circus guys, Matt and Zach to Claire and to Kevin, and especially Kevin for letting me use his song. Thank you to all of the people who have supported us this season, especially to Sean Garrison for letting us use his music. Thank you listeners. Thank you for your support. For the many times you've reached out, please continue to do that. Give us feedback, leave us reviews. We're just so grateful that you're with us on this journey. Thank you for being with us in this first season. We're going to have a little bit of a break. We're having a little mini series on a few books and the story behind those books in the winter and spring months. We'll see you in a few weeks when we interview Claire about her book, Girl Arise. God bless you, and we'll see you then.